0: I don't know about you, but it is great to be here and to look out and see not only your faces, but as I was listening to Mahan read God's word, what a glorious privilege. If you'll take just a second and look around, cast your eyes around, and you'll see that God has brought the nations here. And it really does bless my heart to see people here from not only Newfoundland and Labrador, but from across Canada and indeed around the world, and may God be pleased as this is just a little Illustration of Revelation chapter 4 and 5, when all the peoples of all the nations and tongues will gather. But Calvary Baptist, I also want you to know that we don't do this alone here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Over here to my left, your right, is the Cawthorn family, Brother Mike and his wife Ingrid. And for Caleb and Jasmine and, and Hannah, it is a joy to have you. Calvary, you've heard so much about Mile One Mission, you've heard about all these things. Pastor Mike pastors a Baptist church in Virginia that is probably about the same size as this church, and they have partnered with us, and they have sacrificially given, and I just want the record to show that a family from America traveled to Newfoundland on April the 2nd and said, let's vacation there. (laughs) So I want you to clap, yeah, clap for that. You need to clap for that. They didn't go to Florida or Jamaica or Belize. They came here and wanted to see all the piles of stuff out there that we want gone. (laughs) But Brother Mike and to you, please give our warmest greetings to Guadalupe Baptist Church. We are so thankful for them and we have a debt of gratitude that we owe them that we could never repay. But I pray that you'll enjoy this week. Uh, If you don't get a chance to meet them, meet them afterwards. Ingrid's uh, father is a story to be told in and of itself, how we came to meet each other as her dad was actually an orphan outside of St. John's. His story of how he came, got in here, got through university, got to Ontario, met Ingrid's mom, became a Christian, and moved to Virginia, raised a family, and then a couple years ago, we were at the Together for the Gospel Conference, and this guy named Mike walked up and said, I know where Newfoundland is. <laughs> Do you know how rare that is when we travel, for people to know where that is? But it is just a story of God's sovereignty and grace. Thank you, Mahan, for reading God's Word. Thank you to our music team. It is good to be back with you. Uh, I feel like I have borne the cross of travel and weather. As well as sickness, yes, Matt, Matt is either blessing me or God is cursing me when I travel with Matt, as it seems that when I travel with Matt, I am delayed. However, but you know what? It is great to be with you. If you've got your Bibles to John 17, stay there. I know it is Palm Sunday, but today I want to officially kick off and begin our journey through this consecration prayer of Jesus. It's not only a a consecration prayer for himself, but it's for his disciples, and and listen closely as I even begin, because it's for every one of us who is a true follower of his. Now let that sink in. First, I want to ask every one of you here this morning, both in this room and for any of you tuned in online, can you say beyond the shadow of a doubt, you are a true follower of Jesus. I watched a video this week of a man who said, he will ask people, if you knew Christianity was true, would you believe? And he said, you would be shocked at how many people will say, no. Even if I knew it was true, I still wouldn't believe. And then he tells you, he said, now you know it's not about intellect or academics or even theology. Now you know it's about morality. So I need to ask you, are you a true follower of Jesus Christ? But secondly, if you would say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, then I want you to think about the prayer that Mahan just read for us recorded in John's Gospel because i want you to really understand in the right here and the right now as you sit here as we heard brother john pray the pastoral prayer over our church that jesus christ of nazareth is right now on april the 2nd of 2023 our advocate and our intercessor dying words I have a book in my library dedicated to just that. It's literally titled, The Dying Words of Saints and Sinners. Anthony Burgess, the Puritan, who preached, by the way, 145 sermons from John 17. So when you think I'm going to go one verse per sermon, I got nothing on that guy. He said this, if the words of a dying man are much to be regarded, how much more of a dying Christ especially words of prayer. Richard Phillips, the commentator, says, Jesus' concerns in the prayer of John 17 show you and I the priorities of his heart. Did you notice it when Mahan read it? First, Jesus prays not that the world would acclaim him, but that God would approve and glorify him. Jesus wasn't looking for the world's Fan fame or, 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 or acceptance, but rather the approval of God and God's glory. Second, Jesus prays that the events to come would glorify the Father. In other words, there was no room for celebrity pastor or celebrity savior for Jesus. He lived and he died all for the purpose that God would get his glory. Third, Jesus devotes most of his prayer to petitions for the salvation and the blessing of his people. There are verses in this chapter that have been read multiple times to you that should make every one of us a little bit uncomfortable. Because he says, I'm not praying for the world. Rather, he says, I pray for those that you have given me. You see, the crisis of Jesus' cross reveals his dying passion for the Father's glory and for the salvation of the elect who belong to him. This prayer... Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, this prayer functions as the, farewell discourse, or the conclusion of the farewell discourse. And in some ways, this is the conclusion of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is it. It's the glory and the mission from the Father. You hear about death and departure, discipleship and the future church. And so, here we are. It's another service, it's another sermon. But I wonder, as I look out amongst you all, both friend and visitor, how many of you, what's your story? How many of you were born into this type of church? How many of you, this is brand new, this might even be one of your very first church services ever? And I wonder how many of you are searching and even discovering what Jesus is or who Jesus is or what the gospel is. And then there's all the in betweens. But as I read this week, Shane Pruitt said there are typically four types of people in any church service those who are lost and know they're lost. Is that you? Those who are lost and think they're found. In other words, you think you're going to heaven, and you don't realize you're not. Thirdly, those who are found but think they're lost. Some of you struggle. You don't realize. You have trust, put your faith and trust in Jesus, and yet you live your life all the time as if you can't trust him. And then finally, he says, those who are found and know they're found. And every one of you is one of those four people. And I want to speak to all four of you as groups today. Now, I've asked this before. I'm going to ask it again. You might think this is the most silly and academically simple question to ask. But I actually think this is the pandemic of the Canadian church, or at least the pandemic of the professing Canadian church, and that is, why do we read the Bible? And I really mean it. Why do we read it? Or maybe more simply, do you read the Bible? Why do we pray? What does it all mean? When we watch the world around us, when we listen to the news and we see all the headlines and we are enthralled as we constantly screen through Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter and Facebook and all these things... Does it not seem like we are actually living, not in the New Testament, but in the Old? Does it not feel like you that we're back in the book of Judges? Where it seems like more and more everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. You have your truth, I have mine. I mean, if you, you and me right now were to stop and think about what just you're dealing with, Every one of you in this room, collectively, your burdens, what are you carrying right now? Whether it's in marriage, whether it's in your friendship, whether it's in work or finances, whether it's mentally, what are the issues that right here and now you are carrying? And with all the issues that you're carrying, do you take the time to be honest and admit how they are affecting you? And how they are affecting you. I know one thing everyone here is dealing with stuff. We're all carrying burdens. For some of us, it's our children. Can we have them? How do we raise them? Will they turn out right? Will we have grandkids? What decisions will our adult children make? What jobs will they have? Will they follow Jesus? Some of us are carrying the burdens of culture. As we see both in Canadian government and American government and world governments, this collision of worldviews. Is it not true that every single person in this room is struggling and dealing with our emotions? We hear words like despair and depression and anxiety and worry as if they're normal. And God's Word says it shouldn't be. And no doubt, I don't think I have to convince anybody in this room that the struggle is real. Whether it's as simple as, I lost my keys, or as profound and worrisome as I can't sleep at night, or it's my health, or I am dealing with hurt or trauma. We are all dealing with stuff, amen? But what I find ironic in the quietness of this massive room, and even what I find sad, and what I want us to focus on here today, and in full disclosure, what I also struggle with right along with everyone else It's this question, what do I do and where do I turn as I deal with my humanity, my struggle? And so friends and visitors and Calvary Baptist Church, I want you to listen now. We will never truly appreciate the privilege and the opportunity And I might add, the lifeline that we have right here and right now. And you might say, Steve, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the privilege and the opportunity and the lifeline to read this book. This, the Bible, is God speaking to us on these words and pages. When Mahan just read that, he wasn't reading from a book. He was reading from the book, the very words of God. And John 17 is not just words in the Bible. They are the very, very words of the first per, or second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, Jesus talking to another person of the Trinity, God the Father, via the power of the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. And so right here and right now, you've got to ask yourself this. Will I allow God to speak to me? Will I be honest about my struggles, and will I bring them right now here and allow this passage of Scripture to affect and effect me? Look at verse 1 again. It's my whole passage. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Calvary Baptist, this is God speaking to us. Jesus prayed about his obedience and trust for God and for our obedience and trust of God. Jesus prayed about glory and death. Jesus will pray about worship, in, about worship in worship and about our discipleship. In other words, Jesus prayed for your life and mine and how he would transform us and help us deal with and make sense of this confusing, chaotic life. I know it's been a while since you've seen me, but friends, this past week alone, in the past seven days, I have sat with, watched, listened to, dwelt with, or responded to countless expressions of the human soul. Grief, shock, anger, hate, despair, shame, guilt, fear, worry, and anxiety. I've seen and been guilty of pride and greed, of covetousness and lust this week. I've heard and seen people use words and their fists to hurt others. I've seen the pained faces of victims of violence, and I've dealt with this now, not only all around me, but also in my own personal life. So what is the answer, you might say? Steve, you've done a great job of pointing out the problems and the issues, but what now? Well, I'm glad you asked. You see, the answer, my friends, Dylan isn't right, is not blowing in the wind. The answer, my friends, is in this book and in prayer. How many times have you heard this expression, Jesus is our example? Amen? That was a weak one, but I know you're Baptists, okay? So we hear, often when we are in preaching, we hear how Jesus is our Savior and our Redeemer. We hear how Jesus is our Lord and God. We hear how Jesus saves and heals. We hear how Jesus loves and cares. And all of that is true. But do you and I realize that Jesus came to live the life we could never live? He came to die the death that we individually and collectively deserve. And then he rose victoriously over death, sin, and Satan. That is something we have to admit we could never do. And why? Why did he do this? To save us. To forgive us, to change us, and to empower us, and protect us, and provide for us. He did it to give us hope, and peace, and life, and security. Look at verse, chapter uh, 17, verses 2 and 3. Since you have given him authority, that's Jesus, over all flesh, watch, to give eternal life. And three, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Calvary Baptist Do you and I realize that Jesus did all of this and even now does this? It's so that we have someone to look to, someone we can know what it looks like. Indeed, Jesus is our example. We are to look to him and we're told we can look to him for help in our time of need. And so today I want us to look at three simple points. We're going to look at the posture of prayer the submission of prayer and the glories and the glorious relationship of prayer. Look at it, Jesus' posture of prayer. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, that's referenced back to 13, 14, 15, and 16, what does he do? He takes them out, and most commentators believe that they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. They're probably in the Kedron Valley, which, by the way, is beautiful and and very quick commercial. Next year, Pastor Steve is leading a group of people to Israel. There'll be more announcements about that if you want to come with me. I'm going to Israel next year because I'm going to mark something off my bucket list and take my wife with me, and we want to go there. But I have been in the Kedron Valley and it's absolutely beautiful, and most commentators think that it was there as they have left the upper room and they're headed to the Garden of Gethsemane that he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. Mark Johnson says, it was offered on the eve of the greatest event in history, what we're about to celebrate in the next seven days. John 17 is found in conjunction with the greatest message ever heard in history, John 13 through 16. And its contents, John 17, involve the greatest experience that history can ever provide. Jesus praying for us. Furthermore, he says, every sentence within the prayer is bound up with the honor and glory of God. But watch this. Notice it says in verse 1, Jesus spoke these words. In other words, are you ready for this? Jesus actually prayed. He didn't talk about it. He didn't write about it. He didn't have good intentions for it. He actually did it. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're told that Jesus prayed no less than 17 times. He prayed at night. He blessed food. He prayed over children. He prayed for strength and prayed for others. But in John's gospel, we actually get more content, more of the actual words of Jesus. But notice in verse 1, he lifted his eyes to heaven and he calls God Father. There are several postures of prayer mentioned in the Bible. Remember the publican of Luke? He wouldn't lift his eyes to heaven. He bowed his head, beat his chest. David was known to prostrate himself on the ground to pray to God. He would cover himself in sackcloth and ashes, and he would literally put his whole face to the ground. And as the church has developed over the last 2,000 years, we tend today to do what? Just when John got up here to pray, to close our eyes and bow our heads. Why? Why is it that, why is it that Jesus looks up while we bow down? Well, Jesus was like us, but he was not us. Jesus is our example, but we are not Jesus Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus was one with the Father. Listen to his prayer before the tomb of Lazarus back in chapter 11. So they took the stone away and Jesus, watch again, lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus looks up to the Father. In fact, Jesus addresses God as Father in all three parts of his prayer. He addresses him as Father for himself. He addresses him as Father for his disciples. And he addresses him as Father for us. And just as the Father sent the Son to focus on the needs of the world, so the Son, at the conclusion of his mission, would return his focus upon the Father. So I want you to see that posture of prayer. And the next, notice the submission in prayer. He says, it lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, the hour has come. Now, if any of you have read through the Gospel of John, you will know that this idea of hour appears over and over throughout the entire Gospel. Jesus lived, but think about this. We have friends right now in our midst that we love and we're doing life with. Friends like our brother Tim over here that's walking through a trial of cancer. We have prayed for Jasmine who has experienced the trauma of the loss of a loved one this week. We are praying with Lisa as she bears the burden of a dad that's in hospital and yet thousands of miles away in Ontario. And many of you are dealing with these things. You're bearing burdens But can you imagine if you knew from the early days of your life that you were going to die, when you would die, how you would die, and what it was going to take? You see, we are a people that always want to know the future, and yet we don't know that the greatest gift from God is you don't know the future. Because trust me when I tell you, you and I couldn't handle it. Jesus lived every day of his life, his entire life. He was literally born to die. And this was the plan the whole time. The entire ministry of Jesus has been directed at this moment in time. And now in his prayer of consecration, just before the events of this hour begins, Jesus says this hour, and he places it before his father. But you notice that while the hour was not come, Jesus was safe. No one could touch him. No one could distract him. Whether it was his own mom back in John chapter 2 when she says, I want you to turn the water into wine. Do you remember what he says to her? He says, woman, why are you saying this to me? My hour has not yet come. You remember in John chapter 8 and 7 when others tried to kill him or arrest him? In John chapter 7, John says, so they were seeking to arrest him. But watch this. No one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. It wasn't until John 12 when the Greeks came and said, we would see Jesus, which, by the way, is something I'm going to get put stenciled on the wall back here. We would, because I want every single pastor and preacher that ever stands in this pulpit to have to look back there and see the words, we would see Jesus. Because my desire is every time we gather as the church and you hear God's word opened and preached, you all would see Jesus. And here it is. The Greeks come and say, we would see Jesus. And this notice it's like it's, you have once a Jew and now Gentiles had heard and come. And so with that, the time had come. And what does Jesus answer is to his disciples in John 12, 23? My hour has come. Come for what? For the Son of Man to be glorified. And this is what Jesus meant. And it's what you and I have to know and understand. The will of God is always going to happen. And the will of God is the best thing for us to happen. In Luke 22, verse 53, Jesus said, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. Why? But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus knew what he would face, what he must face. He knew he would suffer. He would be betrayed by his disciples and betrayed by us. Be rejected by the world and us. He would be attacked by Satan and even have God, the Father himself, turn away from him. But notice, notice, he says, my hour has come. He doesn't quit. He doesn't argue with God, even in the Garden of Gethsemane. And and see, guys, this is why I mean it. Do you read your Bibles? The problem of so many of you, and I love you, and this is why I'm saying it. The problem so many of you face is not the chaos and confusion of the world. It's that you're not reading the Bible. In actual words, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And this, my friends, is the mighty difference and lesson right here for us to learn. We just finished up in March reading through the the big 66-chapter book of Isaiah. And I'll be honest, it was a slug sometimes. There were times I was deep into that thing and I'm like, Lord, what am I supposed to get from this? But then I'd come to a chapter, like Isaiah chapter 38, and I learned all about this king named Hezekiah, this king who served God and trusted God. And then God comes to him and says, Hezekiah, put your house in order because you're going to die. And what does Hezekiah do? He immediately says, No, 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 Lord, that's the wrong will. I want to live. I want to live. And so you know what? I believe that God gives us this lesson because God says to Hezekiah, all right, I'll give you 15 more years. Now read it. They were the worst 15 years of his life. In those 15 years, he would lose a nation. He would lose his faith. He would lose his health and come to the end of his life. He refuses to pray to God. Let me dare say, let me boldly say, he would have been better off submitting to God's will for his life. What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3 when they stood before King Nebuchadnezzar? And again, this is going to pour water on the prosperity gospel. This is going to pour water on the idea that if you're a Christian, life's going to go well for you or you just pray hard enough and God will give you anything you want. Notice it says, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And look at their confidence, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O King. Now that's where we all stop reading. And we hear books and hear sermons. Pray to God and you'll stand in your fiery furnace. And you know what I got to say about all that? Because it's a lie from the pit of hell to make you weak as a Christian. It goes on to say, but if Not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In other words, we believe and know that God is able to deliver us. And we also know this, that if he does not, he'll deliver us through death and we will not compromise and we will not bow down to you. So live or die, we win. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Do you believe that a God who created you and a God who could send his son to live for you and die for you and rise again victoriously over sin who right now is at the right hand of the father full of grace and truth as your intercessor and your advocate and you walk through the trials of your marriage or your family or your health or your mind and you don't think Jesus doesn't have a will for you? Oh, he does. And it's a good and perfect will, and you don't have to be afraid. Even the disciples, after Jesus had prayed this prayer and submitted to the hour of the gospel, in Acts chapter 4, when when Peter uh, preaches his sermon, and it says that they trusted the will of God. And back then in chapter 5, in Peter's famous, we ought to obey God rather than men. And that's just not what we do, but that is versus what we say. It is more that we will trust God than we will trust the world. And you know what it says in Acts 5? They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Where are those Christians in Newfoundland and Labrador? When the world mocks us, And the world makes fun of us when the world wants to marginalize us and threaten us and attack us and none of it hurts or none of it helps and all of it hurts. But where's our meek, humble attitude to boldly and meekly, patiently and faithfully and with long-suffering say, I ought to obey God rather than men. But I am counting myself worthy to suffer with my Savior. Because you know what? As a Christian, let me say something, as countercultural as it can be. The worst that Satan or this world can do to you is kill you. And yet, in killing you, they release you to eternal life. Oh, that we would see a a revival of Christians. What was it that Pliny the Younger said to Caesar? I don't know about these Christians, but I can tell you this. They die well. But I wonder if the greatest revival for us is not that we would die well, but rather that we would live well. Jesus calls God Father. But notice, of all the prayers that is addressed to the Father, six times in this chapter... But notice in verse 11, he calls him holy father. And then in verse 25, he calls him righteous father. You see, Jesus knew who God was and is. And here's my question. Do you and I? When I call my dad, which I did yesterday, I know who I'm calling. I know all about him. I know because I have a relationship with him. I've spoken to my dad literally thousands of times. I've seen my dad in action. I've experienced him in a thousand ways. I know that my dad loves me. I know he cares. I know he'll tell me the truth. I know he wants to help me. And I know these things. But you know what, church? I find it absolutely fascinating how many so-called Christians are praying to a God and they really don't know if he's their father. They know very little about him. They spend very little time with him and simply pray out of hope and guess and fear. For too many Christians, God is a genie in a bottle, a lucky rabbit's foot, a force, a cosmic God, karma, and on and on it goes. But here in John 17, 1, Jesus wants us to see God as a father, as the father, our holy father, our righteous father, a good, good father who is love. He is grace and mercy and strength and peace and long suffering, but he's also truth and justice and might, a father who knows everything, controls everything, sees everything, and nothing, my friends, nothing can happen outside of his knowledge and say so. And why is that so important? Because if God is this, then we can trust him. You can cry out to him. We can confess to him. We can ask for mercy and grace and love, and we can trust him more than ourselves. You can trust him more than money or power or fame or acceptance of the culture or the mob or social media, young people. You can trust God over your emotions, over your hurts, your past. You can bring to God your pain and your scars. You can bring him your embarrassments and your shame. We can come to God with our burdens and our questions and our doubts, and we can admit, I I don't know and I can't we can wholeheartedly admit things like I've sinned I've failed I broke that promise I lost my temper I struggle with lust I long for control I thirst for fame and yet for all of that I'm still broken and I'm still scared and I'm still searching and I still don't know what to do and I'm living this life as if as if it's all I have Everyone in this room says, I need to be happy and I long for pleasure and I must have this or that. But friends, don't mistake God's love and grace for the false belief that he affirms and celebrates sin. Friends, Jesus knew and was the only truly innocent person in all of history. He was unjustly treated and publicly mocked and blasphemed as a criminal, I might add, yet he didn't hide and he didn't avenge. Philippians 2 speaks of this, that at the name of Jesus, he in his humility and meekness and his mercy and grace is what's his coming this week. It's the celebration, what some people call the great reversal, which leads me to my last and final point very quickly. Notice Jesus' glorious relationship empowered by prayer. He says that you would be glorified, Father, and I would get my glory back. Do you know that glory and glorify is used no fewer than 42 times in the gospel of John? All the way back to the introduction, John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen as glory, glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Church, listen, John wants you and I to get this very specific idea of glory, namely, that divine glory that shines in a humble, sacrificial service. Jesus' supreme act of humble service was performed in his atoning death on the cross, and that's where his glory would be consummated. That's why Carson quoted it as the great reversal. Jesus spoke explicitly of his cross as the time of his his being, lifted up in glory. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus prays for glory even in a shame. He prays for eternal glory, and he prays for the intimate, shared glory of his Godness. And I want you to see in the coming weeks, Jesus asks for the gifts of glory. God's grace is biblically defined as a free gift. And here Jesus says that the Father has given him these three gifts, grace, authority, and a people. And I'm going to unpack this glory in the near future when I come to verse 5. But as I conclude, here's my application for you this morning. On Palm Sunday, I want to make this personal. Jesus prays for glory, and to get it, he's going to walk through shame and pain. But this glory is also ours to share, too. And what are we to learn from this one verse? Ray Ortland says, life, Jesus is not a life coach for winners or whiners who want to improve their game. He is the rescuer of losers who are squandering their chance at life. You see, Jesus prayed to God in heaven. Church, will we? Jesus submitted to God in heaven. Will we? Jesus glorified God in heaven. Will we? And Jesus displayed complete self sacrifice when he spoke mercy. Will we? James Merritt says the primary pers- purpose of reading the Bible is not to know the Bible. The primary purpose to read the Bible is to know God. Jesus is the truth we are to look for in Scripture. We will read him for eternity, and we're never going to finish him, never exhaust him, never fully explore his depths. In short, life you're living right now, your greatest goal should be to get to know Jesus. Jesus prayed this prayer, my friends, and by the way, he's still praying it. Jesus calls us to pray this type of prayer. We want God to be glorified, and we're desperate to do anything that will give him glory in death or life. For me to live as Christ, amen, and to die is gain, amen. Terry Virgo says, Becoming a Christian involves new life imparted by the Holy Spirit with fruit spontaneously growing in us through his indwelling life. It's inward transformation. But he also says it involves becoming a disciple, a learner, a follower, making good choices, accepting disciplines. Both are true. So you need to cling to this week. It is finished. You need to cling to this week, what we started the service with. Come to me and I will give you rest. You need to cling to this week the promise of Revelation 21 that God is going to make all things new. And by the way, he is coming soon. And I don't care where you stand on eschatology. Some of you are pre-trib. Some of you are mid-trib. Some of you are pre-trib or pre-wrath. Some of you are post-trib and all-mill. And many of you are pan-trib. It'll all just pan out. But I do wonder this. Jesus is gonna come. And I wonder how many of us will be like, no, no, Lord, just give me a few more minutes. I find a lot of people are saying they want Jesus to come. You see, prayer is challenging and sometimes difficult, but the promises that God has made are wonderful. So surely it makes sense to persevere and discover the awesome dynamic power hidden in the promises. Remember the early church? They devoted themselves to prayer, and what happened? They had amazing results. The problem that most of us in the church have today is we say, Promise me results, or worse, like the Pharisees and the crowds, Show me a sign, and then and only then I might pray. And you know what that screams? That says, Lord, I don't trust you. Lord, I don't believe you. And ipso facto, I don't love you. And you know why Jesus loves me? This I know doesn't seem to be working amongst our children today. It's because we don't truly understand and trust and believe in the reality that Jesus died for me. Dorothy Sayers says, It is curious that people who are filled with horrified indignation whenever a cat kills a sparrow can hear the story of, God, of, of, of the killing of God told Sunday after Sunday and not experience any shock at all. Church, listen. Heaven will not wipe away tears. Listen to me now. Heaven will not wipe away tears. Angels will not wipe away tears. Loved ones will not wipe away tears, but Jesus will with nail-scarred and tender hands wipe away your tears one by one. Calvary Baptist, let us learn this from John 17:1. Here's a Puritan prayer. Thy word is full of promises. May I be made rich in its riches, be strong in its power, be happy in its joy, abide in its sweetness, and feast on its preciousness. Now, as we end, I need to apologize. I know I need to admit something that I've been wrong about. For 25 years as a pastor, and far too many times when I've preached, I've referred to the church as a hospital. And that's only partly true. You see, Calvary, we are called of God through Jesus' Son by the power of the Spirit to not just be a hospital. Now, we are to be the one group on planet Earth that anyone And everyone can come to and say, help me. But once we give them and each other the holy, loving, grace-filled, mercy-driven, patient medicine of God's Word, and once we and they trust that medicine and believe in it, then, then we are more than a hospital, then we are family. We are now brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we're not just any family, we're a commissioned family. We are to become an army, a gospel army, not a political one, not even a moral one. We now storm the gates of hell, not with our morality, but with the power of the gospel. We tell people Jesus loves us, and he lived for you, and died for you, and rose again for you, and he knows you, and he created you, and he now lives for you, and he loves you as you are, but he'll never leave you as you are. He loves you enough to tell you the truth, gives you value, and purpose, and power to live this life, and not only to exist, but to have life, joy, belonging, and peace, and you know why I need to apologize? you know why we struggle to read God's word and pray and the reason we struggle to be a family and the reason we struggle to be a gospel army is because we all too often don't see Jesus as our savior and God as our father excuse me from my, my pointedness all too often we see God like a drug dealer and let that sink in too many of us, me included, see God's word and prayer. We see going to church and giving ourselves and our resources. We see prayer and love and care as a fix. We go to church, we go to a small group, we read a little and pray a little and then we live lives our way. And once we get into trouble or the stress and anxiety of life, when marriage is failing or kids are rebelling, when the doctor says that dreaded word cancer or you're gonna need surgery, when the boss lays you off or worse, fires you, when it all goes wrong and then we come and we go, I need another Jesus fix. But what if... Jesus prayed for us, and Jesus is praying for us. What if God is your father, not your drug dealer? We know we can go to him, and we want to be near him, and we want to be like him, and we feel safe around him, and we talk to him, and we don't stray from him. And this is why the posture of prayer and the submission of prayer is what always gives way to a glorious relationship in prayer and life itself. Don't wait for cravings to come or even more. Don't wait until the withdrawal pains hit. Instead, let us be desperate to pray, faithful to pray, confident in prayer. Trust God's model to pray. Why? Because we have a father. Isaiah 63, for you are our father. And it doesn't matter if Abraham doesn't know us. It doesn't matter if Israel does acknowledge us. O oh, Lord, you are our father, our redeemer of old is your name. And that's why the preacher of Hebrews said, since we've got this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Calvary, let us hold fast our confession for we don't have a high priest who is not able to sympathize with our weaknesses. We've got a father to come through. We can come to him and say, I need you. So don't leave here and say, well, I got my God fixed for the week. No, I came and I met my Savior, and I'm going to spend all day with him, and all week with him, and all month with him, and all year with him, and all eternity with him. And let him, the one who prayed, who still prays, be our Father. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it has taken me half my life to start to appreciate the depths of your word. All of this from one verse of John 17, and I honestly left thousands of thoughts in my journals and on my computer. God, help me, help me and my friends and my family. That we would take up this posture of prayer and we would submit to you in our lives in prayer and we would know the glorious power of relationship with you in prayer. And if there's anyone here this morning and they don't know you, may they hear, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If there are men and women here that are struggling in their marriages, in their spiritual walk with God, with their children, with purity, anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, being overwhelmed, feeling like they're under-resourced. Lord, if there are men and women here who are feeling the sting of your conviction as they have hidden behind shields of pride and self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, oh God, may this be a place right now where we will hear from you as our Father, and may anyone who needs prayer feel free to come and ask for it. May anyone who needs to know Jesus feel the freedom to come and say, we would see Jesus, but Lord, may we now sing not just a song of conclusion, but a heralded anthem of resolution to go and apply these things to our life. In Jesus' name. Amen.